Well, this morning we are beginning a new sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, before we kind of dive into that, I want to be able to give you just a little bit of context so that you don't kind of come in here blind and have no idea what's going on. So let me just quickly share with you a little bit of what's happening. So at this time, you have two different kingdoms. You have Israel uh, in the north and Judah in the south. They're all kind of Israelites, but they've been split up by some of uh, David's uh, progeny, by his, by his children. And so Judah is also where Jerusalem is. And all of a sudden, the Babylonians come in around 587 from the Babylonian Empire, and they destroy Jerusalem. I mean, they destroy the temple, they destroy the walls, they kill massive amounts of people, um, they put others, they make others into slaves, and then others they exile. These were oftentimes the best and the brightest. You've probably heard about them. These are people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were exiles who then went, were taken to the Babylonian Empire and began to work for them. Well, many years later, the Persian Empire then all of a sudden uh, began to take over. And so the Persian empires came over. They took over Babylon. Uh, but the Persians, unlike the Babylonians, they didn't like to have exiles. And so what they tended to do was they would release those people, like the people from Judah, and they would let them go back to their own country. And you can see, I've got a picture here, a map, if you're curious. I, I, I couldn't find my little laser pointer. I have one. I love a good laser pointer. But uh, if you can see this, in the middle there is, you see Jerusalem. Uh, and, and then to the east of there, uh, you see Susa. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then to the west uh, is you have Egypt. And Egypt and Persia, they were not friends. They were enemies. And so another part of the reason why uh, many, uh, or the Persian Empire was happy to have the uh, Judah folks from Judah go back is because then they were kind of in the middle. They set up a buffer state, if you will. And it, it took the Egyptians a little bit longer to try to get to Persia if you had to go through a bunch of people than if you just were able to go and there was nobody. Does that make sense? So now we're in Susa, and this is where Nehemiah takes place at the beginning, at least. This is where Nehemiah is living, and it is the winter resort for the Persian king. So this is where you went to winter. It was temperate. It was beautiful weather there in the winter time. And so that's where they were. And about um, at some point, um, um, the Persians sent back Ezra. And Ezra is a, uh, is, is a leader um, who is also, the, for the book is named after it, comes right before Nehemiah. And Ezra's job was to go back and to prepare or to restore the temple. And that was his job. And then 13 years later, we get to Nehemiah. And remember, Nehemiah is in exile, but he was born in exile. He'd never lived in Jerusalem. He had just heard about Jerusalem, just heard about what, what things were like back in his hometown. But he'd never actually been there, at least not yet. And it is there that we then begin our scripture passage today in Nehemiah chapter 1. And so let's begin with that. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. And they replied, 
The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At the time, I was cupbearer to the king. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would speak to us through the words of Nehemiah, someone who lived long ago and a time very different than our own. And yet we know that your scripture is timeless. And so we pray that you would enable us by the power of your spirit to hear what it is that you would have to say to us this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So a few weeks ago, uh, I told our parish uh, associate, uh, Reverend Stan Johnson, that uh, that we were going to be going through the book of Nehemiah. And he said to me, why? Now, he didn't actually say it like that, but that makes the story better. What he actually said was, oh, well, why? Which I thought was a good question. And why should we go through a book of Nehemiah? Now, a few weeks ago, uh, in one of our crowded Sundays, uh, I heard a few comments about, well, we're, we're uncomfortable in the sanctuary. We need to do something. Maybe we should make it a little bit bigger or something. And I said, well, we could, but that would cost a lot of money. What we could also do is we could go through a sermon on Nehemiah, and that will quickly thin the crowds out a bit. So this may be your only time to hear about Nehemiah today, so I hope it's enriching to you. Why go through a book like Nehemiah? I think it's a good question. I've never, I don't think I've ever even preached on anything from Nehemiah. I know that I've never done a sermon series on Nehemiah. So why Nehemiah? Well, 
One of the reasons, it seems to me, is just generally it is good to go through the Old Testament from time to time and to remember it. We oftentimes, Christians, we tend to focus, understandably so, on the New Testament and the Gospels. And yet what we perhaps fail to understand is that if you really want to deeply understand the New Testament and Jesus, you need to also deeply understand the Old Testament. I mean, when Jesus walked this earth, I don't know if you know this or not, there was not a New Testament. Did you guys know that? Of course you did, right? There was no New Testament. And so oftentimes he's referring back to things that happened in the Old Testament. And you need to know that if you really want to understand Jesus. Uh, Mark Roberts, he was our guest speaker uh, last year at the All Church Retreat. And he says that many Christians suffer from what he calls the Wawona Syndrome. Now, you may remember the Wawona tree. I've got a picture for you right here. It was this famous tree uh, back in, I uh, don't you miss the VW bugs like that. Those are classics. We used to have one, baby blue. It was amazing. Anyways, I sidetracked. So the Wawona tree was in Yosemite, and it was this great tree, right? This mammoth tree that you could clearly, you could drive through. It was amazing. It had a huge trunk, obviously, massive branches. It was incredible. But then, and I forget exactly why, I think it was actually snow melt, something happened, and all of a sudden, as you can see with this next slide, boom, it pummeled right, right to the ground. So naturalists went in. They said, well, what happened? It was so strong. And what they discovered about the Wawona tree is that while on top it seemed very strong, its roots were very, very shallow. And so it didn't take much, apparently, then all of a sudden the whole thing just began to fall. And, and Mark Roberts says this, this is very much like what happens with Christians at times. We focus so much on the New Testament that we fail to understand the roots from whence it has come. We fail to understand and to be able to see how God has worked through God's people, through people like Abraham, Moses, Rahab, has continued to work through them, how God called them, and, and, and that rich history that we are a part of. And so we tend to focus just on the church, just a little bit of it. And if we could understand more deeply all of the roots of our faith then when the headwinds come, which always come, we will be much more likely to be able to stand. We will have heard more and more stories about God's faithfulness, more and more stories about times when God's people thought that God had forgotten them, but he hadn't, and as, as we'll see in Nehemiah. And so it's important for us then to actually kind of dive in deeply, not just to the New Testament and to the Gospels, which at points is easier to do, but also into the Old Testament. And not even just the fancy stories of the Old Testament, right? Like Moses or Genesis, but even stories like Nehemiah's. So why study Nehemiah specifically? Well, there's going to be a lot of reasons, and I decided I'm not going to list those reasons right now. We will discover them as we kind of go through this series over the next two to three months. But there's one thing that we're going to focus on this morning that we will see a little bit periodically throughout the book, and that is this that one of the things that Nehemiah does is he gives us this beautiful display or reflection of what it means to follow God and to be a leader. A lot of what we see in Nehemiah is this great story of leadership. Now, that doesn't mean in Nehemiah 3 you're going to reach this great list where Nehemiah says, here are the seven habits of highly effective leaders. He's not going to give you any kind of list like that. What he is going to do is just by the way he lives, for those who have eyes to see, we will be able to see how exactly it is that he decided eventually, as we'll discover, to go back to Jerusalem and to begin to lead his people. 
people there. He was a great leader. This is a really kind of interesting first chapter. I don't know if you caught it, but as you go through, he begins by just saying, here I am, here's my brother. I asked what was going on in Jerusalem. Then he has this really long prayer that we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. And then after all that, he says, well, Lord, you know, help me, give me mercy as I talk to this man. And we don't know who this man is, but this man ends up being the See, this is why we're going through Nehemiah. Ends up being the king. You shouldn't know this yet. That's okay. The king. And then he says at the very end, oh yeah, I'm the cupbearer of the king. Now, we need to pay attention to that because a cupbearer is not just someone who holds the cup for the king. It's not even just somebody, though it is someone who tastes the, the, the drink and then gives it to the king to make sure it's not poison. That part of the job does not seem that great to me, but that's fine. At least you're never getting, you know, you're never getting the king's backwash. He's just getting yours, I guess. And so I know, gross, but true nonetheless. And so, but they were also, scholars tell us that cupbearers were typically very influential in fact, sometimes they were some of the most trusted confidants of the king was the cupbearer. They're always there. Obviously, they trusted him enough to, to take the drink. And so, so it was a very trusted person. And Nehemiah, remember, is an outsider, an exile. And he's the one. He somehow, because of his keen leadership, was able to work his way all the way up the business ladder, the kingdom ladder, if you will, to become the cupbearer, a trusted confidant of the king. So one of the things that we're going to discover then is leadership in this book. And I think that's especially important, if I can say, in a church like Zionsville Presbyterian Church. I've served three different churches uh, uh, during my pastoral ministry. And, and without question, uh, ZPC has the highest percentage of leaders of any of the other churches. That's not, a, that's not a value statement. It's not like we're better than them or they're better than us. It's just the fact, right? There's just a lot of leaders here. And I've discovered that over my five and a half years here. That means you have to lead a little bit differently, right? There, there was a time when uh, one of the churches, or two of the churches really, where if I had an idea about a mission state or a mission project or something, I'd be like, hey, maybe we should do this. And they'd be like, yeah, let's do it. It's great. What a wonderful idea. You're amazing. Here, if you say, hey, I've got an idea, they're like, hmm. Well, have you thought about this? And, and what about that? And, and what about if you do this? And sometimes the project, I think it's going to be like 30 minutes long. And before you know it, it's three years. They have a whole vision statement of 25 different ways that we're going to do it and 50 different things that we need to be concerned about if we embark on this mission. That's just who we are. It's not a plug and play. That's just who we are. We like to participate and have leadership in it. I've noticed it a lot in the property team. Next week, uh, I'm going to give an update. I'm not, there's no big report, but I'm going to give an update on where we are as a property team. We've made a lot of progress of late. Things are picking up, and so I'll, I'll give a wee bit of an update. But it's been fascinating to be a part of, of this property team with a group of people who are all clearly very successful in what they do. And you can tell, right? You, you can tell as you work with them, that they're very successful and what made them successful. But, but, but again, what happens is it's, very, it's been very rare that someone on the property team has said, hey, I have an idea. What if we do this? And everybody else has been like, oh, that's a swell idea. Let's do it. No, usually it's like, well, are we sure? And we come up with 25 different things as we look at it. But it, it's an amazing process and we're kind of on the same page and moving forward. But one of the things that I realize is that they are a microcosm. So at some point, by the 
grace of God, when we come and we say, hey, here's what the session thinks that we should do with the property. Some of you, many of you are going to have a lot of great questions. Others of you are going to have huge concerns. Some of you, especially initially, would think, oh, we totally shouldn't do this. But it's going to be amazing. In the long run. Because here's what I've also discovered, which is that if you can get a group of leaders who are all pulling in the same direction, then by the grace of God, you can accomplish a remarkable amount of things. And it is incredibly exciting if you can get everybody going in the same direction. And so there's so many of us here who are leadership in lots of different ways, social service organization, governments, our business, in our homes, whatever else it might be. And I think that Nehemiah has something to say to each of you right where you are during the week. And I know it has something to say to us as a church who desires also as a community to be a leader in this community. So, what are we learning about Nehemiah in this first chapter? Well, one of the things that we discover, of course, very early on is the fact that like any good leader, Nehemiah is not just burying his head in the sand. He wants to know what is happening. And so he asks his brother and those around him who have just come apparently from Judah, from Jerusalem, what's going on? And the report is not good, as you may have heard, that the people are shamed, that they seem to be broken, that the walls clearly have crumbled, that the gates uh, were destroyed by fire. And the first thing that Nehemiah does is he begins to weep. He begins to weep. Which I think is a remarkable first step. Because what it reveals is this passion that he has for his people. For the people that he will, before long, begin to serve as a leader. In other words, they are not just objects who are there and who are going to be working for him to do what he wants. Rather, they are somebody that he is going to be working with in partnership as a team. My guess is that most of us at some point in our lives have worked for a leader perhaps who's clearly only there for him or herself. And it's clear that you are just there to further that person's mission. And my hope is that we have also worked for somebody at some point in our lives for whom it is clear that we are in this thing together. And one of the things that you notice, of course, is that if you're in this thing together, you can accomplish so much more. Nehemiah was not looking at them as pawns. Instead, he wept for them because they were a part of what he was going to do. There's a humility that you almost always see with leaders like this. That says the difference between a leader and a follower is not a difference of value or worth. It is simply a difference of role. And together, we are going to continue to move together. And so Nehemiah begins with this visceral response of weeping out of his love and care for those whom he will soon begin to lead. But now here's what's also important which is that Nehemiah doesn't just sit there with what is. Instead, as perhaps you heard, he begins to say, what can or should 
be. We go through all of the prayer, and then towards the end, he reminds God, he's probably more so reminding himself, that long ago, at the time of Moses, God had said that these were his people. And if they began to follow him, that he would gather them all together. And for those who understood the Old Testament, they would have remembered these prophecies. They would have remembered the sense of shalom and wholeness that could happen, that God could create. And so what Nehemiah is doing here is he's saying not only, oh, woe is me, this is the way it is, I guess we're stuck, oh, this really stinks, ah, no, he's saying, but while everybody else may be saying there is no hope, I know what can be and what will be someday. I've heard it said that the difference between a manager and a leader is that a manager, by and large, a good manager, will simply do a good job of taking care of what is, whereas a leader is always asking, what can be? Where are we going next? That sounds really easy. But here's the reality. Being a leader like this is not easy. And here's why. Think about Nehemiah for a moment. He's in exile. He spent all this time working his way up the corporate slash business slash kingdom ladder. And now he has tons of influence with the king of Persia. That is no small thing. And he's living in the San Diego of the Persian Empire. It is comfortable. It is nice. The temperature is temperate. The sh- the, the, there's a cool wind that always kind of goes through, so you never get too hot. There's a beautiful palace. The water from this particular river was apparently so pure and so good that when the king was out for, to one of his other palaces, he would have them bring silver flagons of water from that river and have them carted all the way to where he was so that he could drink of them, which means, of course, that first before he drank of them, Nehemiah got to drink of them, of this crystal clear, pure water. He was into bottled water long before we ever were. I mean, Nehemiah is living the exilic dream. And it's taken a hard, lot of hard work. And yet, and yet, he knows that far away, in a place he's not yet even been, that something is not right. And so Nehemiah, no matter just how much and how comfortable it is where he is, he decides that he, he will decide that he cannot simply stay there because he knows what can be and he is not complacent. And that's not easy to do. You guys know this. You've seen, you've heard the history of all these large corporations, these big businesses. that They're on the cutting edge at the beginning, and then they get really big. And what happens after they get really big? Then they begin to focus just on how can we keep what we have? How do we keep our share of the market? Meanwhile, you've got these little upstarts that are coming, and they're asking different questions. They're saying, where are we going? What's next? What are people talking about now? And all of a sudden, they begin to swell. Meanwhile, this big big fancy corporation is just kind of worried about how do we just stay with what we have? Hold on for dear life until retirement, right? And it's not just corporations, it's churches. They're probably even worse. Several years ago, we talked about 
uh, this church is a church plant. And I, I mentioned the fact that one of the most dangerous things that church plants ever do, one of the most dangerous moments of their life, is when they put down the very first brick of their building. There's something psychological that just is completely natural. You see, when ZPC was a church plant, right, they were meeting at the middle school. You've heard these stories. They're very nostalgic at this time, right? They're, they're like, oh, you remember when we were meeting in the middle school, the big eagle that was there? Oh, it was great. And what they've forgotten, of course, is that, you know, rolling out something new every Sunday, all right, we got to put out all the chairs again, got to set up the sound system, is an absolute nightmare. And so even though now it's like, oh, that was wonderful. At the time, you know what they were thinking? When can we get a building? Let's get a building. Come on, let's get a building. But do you know what they were also doing the whole time? Because this is what church plants do. They were living a sense with a sense of adventure. They were saying, hey, what are we doing? They had a clear focus. This is an area that needs a church where people can hear about Jesus Christ. They were always asking not just who's here, but who's not here. Do you know why they were asking who's not here yet? Because they were going to close if they didn't figure that out. Because when you only got eight people, you can't really support much. And so you're always saying, who's not yet here? Who doesn't yet know about what it is that we're doing? But as soon as you begin to build a building, all of a sudden, it's just natural. You just begin to say, how do we keep this thing going? How do we keep the lights on? How do we make sure that whoever comes next does not ruin this place. So it begins just naturally to begin this sense of less of, hey, who else are we going to go out to? Who can we talk to about what's going on here? And more of just like, all right, how are we going to keep the lights on? Let's go, guys. How are we going to keep everything going? How are we going to make sure that these kids don't ruin the carpet? How are we going to do all these sorts of things, right? It's just this natural. Now, that doesn't have to happen. I'm just saying that it's a natural temptation. I'm going to be suggesting in the weeks and months ahead that I think a building can be a great mission generator for the kingdom of God. But I also think that leaders of churches always have to make sure that we are never content with what we have, but we are always asking the question of who is not yet here and how can we best reach out to them? It is a natural temptation, but leaders always have to be asking that question. Not just what do we have, but where now are we going? Now, there's one last thing, it seems to me, that is absolutely important. And this may be the most difficult things for leaders to do. More difficult than observing what is. More difficult than saying where are we going or what's next. And Nehemiah does a remarkable job of demonstrating this. And that is this. Nehemiah begins, he genuinely begins, the meat of this first chapter is prayer and confession. Prayer and confession. One of the things that's really hard, someone had said this about Nehemiah, about leaders is that they tend to be, not always, but oftentimes they are, they are type A people who are looking for swift and decisive work. They love to do work. And as soon as they say, this is what we're going to do, do you know what they start doing? They start doing it. They come up with, okay, here's the top five things that we do. Here's a vision of what we're going to do. And then they start telling people, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. Okay, I'll do that. Okay, we'll check back in again in one week, and we'll see what kind of progress we're making. It's going to be great. What are you doing? Why are you still standing there? Why are you sitting there? Go, 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 go. This is what a type A, I think, right? 
But what does Nehemiah do? He doesn't start by that. Nehemiah just says, all right, there's, there's where we need to go. Oh, there's a lot of work. People are dying over here. The walls are crumbled. We got so much work to do. Oh, my God. Let's pray. And this wasn't just some sort of, sometimes we think about pray, and it's, it's kind of like we would do this, right? We know this prayer. I, quite frankly, I do this prayer a lot. All right, guys, let's pray. Lord, please bless this work. Amen. Let's go. But you see, what Nehemiah, the kind of prayer that he was doing, is not neat and tidy and cute. It is a prayer. I want to suggest that prayer It is a prayer of rebellion. And what Nehemiah's prayer is rebelling against is not anything on the outside world. It is a rebellion against what is inside most folks, especially leaders. Which is a sense that it is up to me. That I have to get this done. That if it's going to happen, it's going to be because of my sheer will power. I am going to make this happen. And Nehemiah bows to that idolatry and says from the very beginning, if this is going to happen, it'll happen first and foremost because of God. And that is incredibly difficult for leaders. But there's another thing that's very difficult for leaders to do. And that is what we see Nehemiah doing in this prayer. It is a prayer of confession. But not just confession for what others have done. We all love praying that confession. Look at verses 6 and 7. Let me remind you of this. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. What's this next word? We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded our servant Moses. Do you hear the beauty of this confession? Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply. I've said a couple times in the last couple of months, and I've only preached a couple of times in the last couple of months. But I've also said it numerous times throughout my time here, which is that if we want to genuinely lead in our community, and one of the greatest ways that we can reflect Jesus is when we are willing to do what most folks, especially leaders, find so doggone difficult to do, which is to admit when we are wrong. To admit that we are not perfect. To admit that we do not have everything figured out. To admit that we sin. To admit that we are broken. To admit that things aren't nearly as picture perfect as they may seem. We find it so difficult to do that. So that then we spend an exorbitant amount of time and energy trying to convey the exact opposite. When if we would stop spending so much time and energy doing this and simply ask for forgiveness or admit our own struggles that we could then focus on where it is that we want to go. 
There, there is probably no leader that I would prefer to follow less than a leader who is never able to admit when he or she has gotten something wrong. But I'll be doggone if as a pastor and a father and a husband, if I don't continue to wrestle with that myself. I mean, how much time and energy, and I've shared this before, I do this always, I do this as much as I can as a personal confession, where, man, it's hard to say I'm sorry. Or, man, I've messed this up. And so it's why I think at least once a year that we should practice confession as a church. Remember, one of the things that we believe is that what we do in here and in this building is practice for when we go out there. Remember, that's why we have a big window, so that you can remember everything you're doing in here should have interaction with what goes on out there. If we sing praises and give praises to God in here, it's practice to be able to do that when we go out there. When we gather around this table, when we gather around our tables today at the all-church brunch, you're only going to be about five minutes late today to that. Guess what you're doing? You're practicing so that when you go home and are in your neighborhoods or at your workplace, guess what? You can practice welcoming others just as Jesus has welcomed us. And so it's why I am going to ask that we actually practice. There's something as well about not just thinking about something like this, but actually writing it down. Hopefully, when you came in, you received a little white piece of paper with lots of space. If you didn't rip out part of the bulletin, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to write down something that you feel like you need to confess. Now, please hear me. A couple things. One is, don't put your name on it. Don't peek at someone else's. And even more importantly, don't make suggestions to somebody who's sitting next to you about what they should confess about. This can be an individual prayer, a personal prayer of confession. It can even be a corporate one, as long as you include yourself. This can't be a corporate one as if, well, there's something big that they're doing over there that's wrong. It has to include you. And what I'm going to ask us to do, and I didn't grab a piece of paper, but I'm going I'm to lead with this. Somehow I'll find some piece of paper somewhere. Scott's already written a few things that he thinks I should confess. And I want us to write that down. Now, we thought about just having you take that home, and that would have been fine. But here's the thing. Here's part of the power of this, it seems to me. Which is that when you write it down and you carry it up, and if you don't feel like coming it up, coming up, or if you can't, that's fine. I'm not here. I'm not going to judge you for that. I'll write that down as one of my confessions if I do, okay? But when you come down, here's one of the things that you're doing. You are releasing the power of sin because you are not hiding anymore. You are able to say, yep, I have this. And in the presence of others, I'm going to admit I am imperfect. I mean, here's the thing. We already know that. But can you actually admit that yourself? And not only that, it is incredibly life-giving. When you see other people who are willing to admit that they are not perfect. Because one of the greatest things that sin does is isolate us into thinking Maybe this is just me. 
Everybody else seems to have it figured out. Everybody else seems to be perfect, and maybe it's just me. It is not just you. So this morning, I'm going to say a a prayer of confession that comes from our Book of Common Worship. I'd ask us to pray that as I just close your eyes while I pray that. And then fill something, fill it out, whatever it may be. And then I encourage you, again, I'm not going to coerce you in this, but I encourage you to come, bend the piece of paper so nobody can see it, and throw it down into this basket as a sign of our reliance on God. And let us begin with this prayer. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen.